yeah, grunge was on the radio. Nirvana had had these big hits, but there was this other thing that had been happening since the very late '80s, where there was kind of a, a hippie renaissance with like Jerry Bear stickers on everything, and everyone was just going to all these festivals. And in America, the the whole thing with Madchester, and you know the baggy bands, the Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, all that stuff. The way that ended up getting picked up in America was not really as like an ecstasy thing. Stone Roses had Paisley shirts on, so it just fit into the pre-existing kind of, um, you know, fashions that were going on in American, you know, hippie culture and like pot smoking culture. too cold i can't take this off you had um this mainstream thing happen with the spin doctors where they were sort of the culmination of it they had this massive hit album pocket full of kryptonite two princes wasn't the big one it was just the one that was the most tolerable to me and i wouldn't like smash the windows of the car if i was in it and it was being played The Black Crows were also huge here. The background in America around this whole thing was very broad. None of this stuff was as niche and kind of striated as it was in the UK, where it was very much like, you know, shoegaze, Madchester, everything was like in its box. You were part of a fan base for that particular genre. It all kind of, you know, became a melting pot over here. And so, this, this kind of weird Jerry Bear Grateful Dead thing, which ended up becoming Fish in the 90s, was very much alive. And when you're, we were teenagers, we would just go to any show we could because you could get fucked up in the parking lot. We would go to fucking Jimmy Buffett. Who cares, right? We weren't going there to hear the music. We were going there to get wasted. Just when you thought the party was over, Corona Extra presents Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reaper Band. August 25th, the Riverport Amphitheater, the last big bash of the summer. So you'd walk around the parking lot and there'd be all these like college kids completely shit-faced and you know you'd hold out your red cup and they'd just like dump white tequila in it. And I like, I remember that actually happened. This girl dumped white tequila in a cup full of beer. And my buddy and I were walking around like, oh, this tastes pretty good. Jimmy Buffett is not the kind of act where the moral majority are going to come pick it or cops are going to go try and make a drug bust in the parking lot. So you could get away with it. <laughs> When I left Sarah Lawrence and got in a cab to go back to get my bus home, the cab driver who picked me up was playing this tape, and I, re I thought I recognized the song. It was re I was really familiar. It sounded like Nothing But Flowers by the Talking Heads. It didn't sound very good. It sounded, you know, live. So I asked, I was like, is this a Talking Heads bootleg? And he goes, no, 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 this is Prince. And I was like, what do you, you mean, like Purple Rain Prince when doves cry? This isn't Prince, this is like a rumba. And he goes, no, no, Prince Nico. Listen away. 
he starts telling me all about Prince Nico Lombarga and his band, Rockefeller Jazz, which was a huge band in Nigeria in the high life scene. They had the biggest selling record in the history of African pop music, which is called Sweet Mother. They're all like eight minute songs, so we only heard a couple of them over the course of this cab ride, but when we got to the end, you know, I, I was like, wow, this is really great stuff. So Prince Nico Embargo, I got to look this up. Thank you. Thank you so much. And he turns back to me and he, he hands me the tape and he goes, you keep it. First of all, I said, no, no, I can't take it. I mean, how are you going to get that in America? This probably came from, you know, your family or friends back home. He said, no, no, I know people. And this is a very popular record. I can get it anytime I want to. I want you to have it. So, I mean, I look back on it and I'm like, I wasn't dressed like a Baja kid. I never wore any of that stuff. I mean, even when I went to Jimmy Buffett, I was wearing all black in the middle of August in a parking lot. It was like 90 degrees. I was wearing all black, like a sweater. You know, because I didn't dress that way, I look back and this guy was probably like, you know, this crazy white boy wants to like get into high life. I got to make that happen. You know, that's how else is how else is Prince Nico going to get out there? Right. And I went home back to Boston and all my friends were into this whole spin doctors Baja, you know, head shop thing. Everyone got the sandals and people were walking around with soap on a rope and Bajas and, you know, it was just, you know, reggae sunsplash. Everybody had a Bob Marley poster on their college dorm wall. If you're in the suburbs, there's no way you're going to really, you know, make a ton of connections. So you just go to head shops in town and then there'd be guys cruising the aisles that would like drop business cards on the floor and you'd pick it up and call the number and you'd meet them two stops down on the orange line and pick up a quarterback or, or an eighth. When we go to these head shops, all my friends would be checking out like pipes and bongs. And like I would make a beeline for the CD section because these stores always had CDs in them. So, like the third time we went in there, I brought the tape with me, the Sweet Mother tape. And I, I brought it up to the counter and I asked these guys, like, I really like this tape. Do you have anything else that sounds like this? And the guy kind of shook his head and was like, he, you know, he opened up to me about it. He wasn't like laughing or whatever. So he's like, this is a great tape. You know, Sweet Mother is the song of Africa. This is, you know, Congolese music. This is High Life. I don't know how to pronounce any of these, you know, names properly. And I apologize if that, you know, offends anyone. I'm not like a scholar about High Life or Nigerian or any other kind of African music. This is just a weird, you know, period in my life where I had this exchange that was totally musical. Um, and not based on, you know, any kind of cultural interest. It was just 100% about the music because I was learning to play drums at that time. And, like, jazz was a turnoff because jazz would get so crazy and so technical that I couldn't play it. It would be like, you know, Ornette Coleman or, and then Free Jazz or Miles and those guys. It was just like I couldn't do anything with that. I was too unskilled. I was a kid. But the rumbas in these High Life songs, this African rumba that came out of Congolese music, um was something I could play and it was a really up jump tempo and I, I liked it a lot. It, it put a lot of pressure on me and improved me as a drummer trying to play along to these like eight minute jams. So after I gave them the Prince Nico tape, they just said, you know, well, you should check out Grand Calais and uh, La Africa Jazz. That's where it all sort of starts to transition away from more traditional kind of um, pining blues sounds into this, you know, Congolese rumba, which begins to be called highlight. <laughs> Oh, 
And they said, you know, Lafrica Jazz was founded by Dr. Nico. Dr. Nico Casada, who's a different guy, and uh, he was a guitarist. And then the singer was this guy, uh, Tamale Rochereau. And so they pointed me over to the, the cassette shelf where they had all these photocopied J-card, you know, bootleg cassettes and mixtapes of different bands. And they told me to buy this um, Lafrica jazz tape and one other, was, which was new, um, or relatively new. It was a late 80s album called Moyibi by Pepe Kale. <laughs> He's like the biggest man that's ever walked the earth. He's enormous. What he was doing was taking the the mid and late seventies um, high life, you know, band sounds and kind of giving it a little bit of a pop music kick. This was called Sukus music, and which ended up being renamed essentially for the dance that it spawned, which was called the Kwasa Kwasa. <laughs> They tried to give me something new and something old, I think is what it was. My excitement was somewhat founded around the idea of like busting the talking heads for ripping off this, you know, sacrosanct African musician because, you know, I was full of shit and I was using, again, knowledge as a weapon. But a lot of this stuff sounded relatively the same. And what it forced me to understand is that this you know, nation, these different nations, you know, Sierra Leone is involved in this too. It's not just Nigeria. Culturally, what music was about for them was sounding the same. It was about recreating an environment, a communal environment when everybody went out and got together and danced and you wanted it to be the same every time because then it felt the same and it was like a, a you know, a home away from home or a place to, you know, blow off steam. I didn't know it was the last time I was going to be going in there, but I talked to them about this Masanga song. They gave me a tape by this guy, Suleiman Rogers. He had this song called Please Go Easy With Me that was just like the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. Now, mister, please go easy with me. I said, please go easy with me. I quite agree that you can dance very well. to New York um, in the early 2000s, um, the whole like strokes, late 90s New York thing where Union Pool was really swinging and like my friends, you know, signed a five-year lease and renovated a warehouse space on Ken Ave and lived there. This all seems so crazy to me <laughs> um, at the time. Uh, when I eventually moved down there, I, we had no room. It was a one bed, you, if you could call it that. And so I boxed up all my tapes and a lot of my records and put them in my parents' basement, which flooded. And so the tapes were in like a cardboard box and I lost all of those tapes. By the time I got into them, you know, they had been sitting in the water and they had like, you know, crusted up and oxidized and they were basically unplayable. This was a, a Mission of Burma bootleg that was in the box. And it, it's just like, it's just like a like running computer printer die in a box and uh the cds are are even like they are even color burned and the um like you can't play them because the water pitted and oxidized the, the cds 
these are bootlegs the Skrull did of, of their initial reunion tour. She like documented every show and put them out. And because I had interviewed Peter Prescott for Pitchfork, she was nice enough to send me a collection. But now they're totally fucking ruined. <laughs> As the internet started to pick up steam, um, even back in the Audio Galaxy days in the early 2000s, I was able to find Christiana and a couple of other songs. But you know there was no real explosion in interest in high life or Nigerian or Congolese pop music. Um, so it, it, it was sort of a lull and I just kind of accepted it and moved on. Um, Nothing But Flowers remains probably my favorite Talking Heads song. And I still think Naked is just such a completely undervalued album. I'm not going to say that it's underrated. I mean, that's so corny because there's plenty of legitimate reasons to dislike that record. You know, I always thought Saxon Violence was one of their best singles. Again, I, I've always loved Nothing But Flowers. That was the recessional at my, at my wedding. Um, my wife and I and everybody walked out to Nothing But Flowers. Once we had moved in and we were living in New York, in the mid-2000s, I saw this blog called Internet Vibes. And it was run by this guy, Ezra Koenig. And he was posting a bunch of like High Life tapes that he had bought or converted into MP3 on his blog. And so I thought, wow, this is pretty crazy. And I was kind of checking around, and there was a lot of these blogs coming up, niche blogs. You know, this was the heyday of that, MP3 blogging. So I got some stuff back that way. The funniest thing was that Ezra formed this band, Vampire Weekend, and they put out a big single called Cape Cod Quasa Quasa. And I thought, well, obviously, this is going to generate a huge interest in this stuff. It's weird. It just seems like everybody was content to have it be Paul Simon's Graceland and, and like not really go anywhere with it. I never really, you know, felt that like Italo Disco in the early 2000s, there was 50 Italo Disco comps that came out and they got all the best stuff. And it was just like, you know, champagne, 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 champagne. Every track was gold. Instead of maybe finding out about someone like Prince Nico Mbari, you you only get like this giant, pretentious droning feature. It's just total hagiography. And that doesn't help anybody. You know, these guys, th these bands, this music wasn't the most important music that was ever made. And it wasn't underappreciated. Sweet Mother sold 13 million albums. I mean, these guys were famous. You know, a lot of Westerners have never heard of them, but these guys did very well for where they were at. They weren't, you know, laboring in obscurity or, you know, dedicating their lives to pop music to the exclusion of all else in this romantic way. That's complete bullshit. These guys were huge celebrities. So they shouldn't be treated any different than the fucking Bee Gees in terms of how you talk about them. You know, it's this kind of ethnocentric condescension that infects all of the dialogue around foreign musics that just really drives me nuts. Cultural relativism is a huge problem. And I see it every time anyone talks about a foreign artist. Don't even get me started on Pussy Riot. Seriously, turn it off. Oh,
50 iterations of the same fucking story about how Deacon is welching on his Kickstarter pledge. Josh Dibb should do a fucking YouTube video of him walking into a fucking salon and buying a Breitling watch with that fucking money. Just snapping it tight and be like, fuck you. You know, that's how much Josh Dibb fucking cares about you and music and Africa.